The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. The Capital Weekly Podcast is a production of Open California and is sponsored by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Greetings and welcome to the Capital Weekly Podcast. I'm John Howard and I'm joined by my friend Tim Foster. Hi, John. And our special guest today is Annie Natoff, who is one of the best known environmentalists in California. You probably don't like that description, but that's certainly true from our end. And she's been for years with the Natural Resources Defense Council, Senior Director of Advocacy for the West. Is that close enough? Okay. Annie, thank Sounds you good. very much for uh, joining us today. Oh, thank you. So you are now living the life of leisure as a retiree, okay? You started doing this for the NRDC in the early 80s, I think 82, 83. Right. Uh, so my first question is, uh, what's changed over all this time in terms of environmental advocacy and what can we expect going into a new era here? Well, I think um, the California uh, has always been known for, you know, charting on a new path when it comes to protecting the environment and climate action. But I think um, in the 21st century, the state really came into its own and we saw the power and influence that a state, the nation state of California can have beyond our borders. And that really uh, generated a whole, a flourishing of uh, grassroots and state-based environmental and environmental justice advocacy organizations focused in Sacramento. And, you know, I think, I think it's pretty accurate that uh, California has as many environmental interest groups and working in Sacramento almost as much as they've got in Washington, D.C. I mean, we've got a lot of people covering so many different issues, both in the state capital and in major cities and in communities around the state. So I think that that the number of folks just involved in the daily effort of uh, protecting our environment, making communities more livable, uh, getting our environmental policies more just and equitable and uh, fighting uh, climate change is, I think it's really the numbers and the commitment that the public has. Uh, you know, California voters, every time they have a chance, they vote for envi the environment and climate action. Do you think having a Trump depart office and now having a new administration, that make your life a lot easier? I sleep better, for sure. <laughs> um, and I think it's, it's great to see what uh, Biden and his team are doing. Uh, just watching them and watching him in Europe this last week and really centering climate in so many of the um, diplomatic discussions is, is rewarding. And I think, you know, when California makes... Uh, makes headway that we make the best headway when we can do it in partnership with uh, the federal government or with other states as well. Um, it's, you know, there's a lot of hubbub and it's easy to, it's easier to organize people against things during um, environmentally hostile federal administrations, but you don't get that much done. And I've always been about 
trying to get stuff done. Do you think we can meet some of these goals? I was just looking at, you know, items that we promised ourselves as a state to do or will be led into do, say, by the administration. But the electric cars, for example, 3035, CEQA, changes in CEQA strengthening or, or altering CEQA? Yeah. Passion. I mean, I think it's always hardest to, you know, we've done the big things where you can have what they, what the terms they call it in pollution law is that you have a, a point source, like a point source is a big factory or a big oil refinery. And you have, you know, dozens of those in the state of California that if you can regulate and clean those up, you know, you, you take a big chunk out of pollution. But when you've got to um, regulate what they call the non-point sources, which is you and me and everybody who drives a car or uh, flushes a toilet or whatever we do that has impacts on the environment, that's a tough nut to crack. And uh, we're working on it. And I think that um, the Newsom administration and the Biden administration as well have uh, a good idea about having a mixture of carrots and sticks uh, to try and help people change their habits. But, you know, it really took a global pandemic to get people to change habits, right? Yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, this last year. So I think it's going to be challenging to um, meet our, our, our climate goals in the transportation sector. And I'm not I think we, you know, because it's connected so much of the transportation, our transportation emissions are connected to where we live and where we work. And so all and California's housing issues are making this making it harder to solve the transportation and the greenhouse gas emission problem. So everything is connected the way old John Muir used to say is that they all are connected and they're all thorny. You know, you mentioned on housing, um, that's an issue, that's a thorny issue that has come up as it relates to environmental regulation. And I'm, I'm thinking mainly of CEQA here, California yeah. Environmental Quality Act. Now, it had been suspended a couple times, I believe, in the construction, for the construction of, say, sports facilities. I'm right. a big one down in LA. But the idea of suspending it for housing construction, residential construction, uh, I think is fairly new. And I, and that, that's, I think a problem environmentalists will have to wrestle with and figure out, is there a compromise here? We get housing we need, but we might have to ease off on environmental control. Well, I, I, for one, think we do need to take a look at that. And, you know, it was actually, it's not suspending CEQA, but um, John, it was more like streamlining or, uh, you know, streamlining judicial review is what, you know, for example, Senator Daryl Steinberg worked on to get that for the King Stadium in downtown Sacramento. Yeah. And um, that type of uh, arrangement is something that I think the Senate is looking at to extend to housing. There's a bill right now, actually, that Senator Atkins is authoring that would have, you know, if you have a um, environmentally good project and it's it's built near transit and you have enough affordable housing in there, then you're going to get a break on some of your secret review. So to incentivize, that's what I was talking about, uh, more about um, have carrots and sticks. Um, 
but you know, there's just not enough. It's hard it, getting the economic signals right for affordable housing is very tough. And what we really need, I think, to get California out of the uh, hole we're in when it comes to housing is we need to have some public funds to help uh, get these things built. You know, I have kids in their 30s and trying to buy a house or, is tough. Oh, right. <laughs> Do you think there's sentiment in the legislature um, to get these proposals through? Uh, is the political will there? I mean, aside from the lineup of the legislature, it's overwhelmingly Democratic. But that's right. this splits lots of different ways on issues like this. Do you think it's doable? Do you think it can get out? Um, I, I have to think it's doable. I, I, you know, I feel like I uh, really staked my claim as an advocate on being optimistic that we could figure out, figure out how to figure this stuff out. Um, but I do think that there is a big, it's human nature to protect what you have and these neighborhood groups that don't want anything to change in their neighborhood yeah. are very powerful at the local level. And in California, land use and housing is determined at the local level. So we're gonna need a lot of city council members and boards of supervisors and others that will look at the greater good and step up. I think that the state legislature has a really important role to be a backstop to that and help stiffen the spines of local uh, legislators. So I think that it has to be a, a partnership between the local level and at the state. And, you know, most of you know, most state legislators were elected in a city council or a board of supervisors at some time, at some point in their political careers. So they all are very sympathetic to that, you know, neighborhood guy who doesn't want any, anything else around his house. <laughs> and that's the problem. The NIMBYs are really, it's making it very difficult in California. And fortunately, I think there's this you know, one of the things that has changed is more young people getting involved in the political process and this group of, they call themselves Yimbies, yes, in my backyard. Uh, they're pushing back saying, hey, what about me? I, I'd like a place to live too. <laughs> so I think they're starting to make some, you know, inroads. And the budget, do you think the budget surplus, the state budget surplus, or excess, or whatever you want to call it, uh -huh. uh, it might be a one-off. You know, it's one. Of, what goes up comes down. We've learned that in the past with budget bubbles. So, but is this a good time to do some of the things you're talking about? Is there? A can we get money out there and into these programs? I think out that um, for housing, for wildfires, drought relief. I mean, yes, we should be using what we have right now to put us in a position to be more resilient in the future. Um, and, you know, California's tax system is we're overly reliant on wealthy people and capital gains tax. Yeah. So if the uh, economy gets, you know, if Silicon Valley catches 
you know, catches a cold, uh, California's in trouble. So um, I think we should, you know, definitely use what we have right now to try and jumpstart some of these programs and put some, uh, you know, reliable base funding in place that we can build on. And I think that uh, what I've seen, I don't follow the budget as closely as I used to, but I keep up on, um, you know, top level stuff. And what I've seen um, with Governor Newsom's investments and the Senate's drought package, those are all good, healthy investments in wildfire prevention and drought management. You you mentioned the drought. Every time there's a drought, which is frequently now, it seems, there's a proposal to float icebergs down from Alaska, uh, do desalination. I think there's actually one plant, I think, up and running in Carlsbad. I thought it was. It might yes. be, yeah. Um, so, what are the, so we're in a drought now. So from an environmental point of view, what are the things we need to do, maybe should have been doing and should be doing next? What, what's the big challenge for us? Well, you know... Um So back in 2014, during the depths of the last drought, I was was a sacrificial environmentalist invited to the meeting with President Obama and the governor in Fireball with uh, (laughs) with all the the farmers and agricultural guys. And I think, um, and I, uh, Senator Feinstein flew out on Air Force One with uh, President Obama, and she gave him an earful about how many more dams we needed to build in California. Uh, so when he finally arrived in this kind of big barn-like thing where we were meeting in Firebaugh, um, and he started his roundtable thing, he he kind of talked in a very professorial way and asked, you know, uh, questions. And he looked at my name tag and said, okay, so what does NRDC think about uh, building more dams? Because he clearly says, you know, Senator Feinstein here thinks we need more. And um, I said, well, Mr. President, there we already have over 1,200 dams in California, and all the best spots are taken. And what we really can do is build more uh, resilience at the local level. And I think actually that is what has happened in a large part. I think you might have been reading about how Southern California is not as in bad shape as they were six years ago because they've been working on developing local uh, reliance and projects there. Orange County does a lot of reuse of uh, water. So I think there's um, a lot of potential there. I mean, we definitely have a system right now that is built on a different hydrologic cycle than what we've got now. I mean, we're used to, it's built on having all that storage in the snowpack. And when even when we do get precipitation, if it's rain instead of snow, it we don't ha- we can't capture it the way we did. So there are a couple of big dams people are talking about. One up near Calusa, and the I yeah think site I, isn't that sites reservoir? I, I think that's off. Two of them. I always get them backwards, but I know there's one at Calusa. There's one near Fresno. Um, yeah, that's Temperance. There's temperance. sites and Temperance. What? Yes. Um, 
are those good ideas or bad ideas from the standpoint of an environmental advocate? Um, it's not so much they're good or bad ideas as are they going to work? And I don't, you know, with the yeah. current problems that we're facing with water supply and distribution, dams aren't the solution. I mean, water rights are the problem that we've got is that we've got so much water going to agriculture and agriculture is doing their part. Some of them are in terms of trying to use it more efficiently, but it's hard to imagine that we're doing everything we can when you see, you know, solid uh, almond orchards and wine and, you know, vineyards planted. And those are permanent crops. So if you have a dry year, you can't not plant them that year. You know, when we have row crops in the Central Valley, when we're feeding the world, you can adjust how you do your farming. Um, but people put in these permanent crops and then I, then it's really hard to cut back when you don't have enough water. In the Central Valley anyway, through uh, the Central Valley Project, right. the farmers getting their actual 100% of the water. I don't think I've ever seen that. And it's in all the years I've looked at it, it seems like it's always 35% or 65% or I don't know how the percentages are figured, but there've been right. years where they're 15 and 20%. And I, I was thinking, man, if I was a farmer and I'm getting, you know, out of 10 gallons, I'm supposed to get, I'm only getting two. I would be picking up my pitchfork and heading to Sacramento. It just seems like really unfair. Well, first off, um, a lot of those, what they're supposed to get, and I'm putting air quotes right there, uh, <laughs> is not necessarily what they need. Um, so there's there's pretty much a structural gap in, I think, in those promises. And, uh, you know, we have a lot of places in the Central Valley, especially on the West Side, that really aren't suited for agriculture. And one of the good uh, trends that I've seen is that we're seeing a recognition on that about that from some folks and, you know, grow, planting solar panels instead of uh, crops that are going to need more water. So there's some, there's some solutions that we can do there too. And, you know, farming is more efficient too. So um, acreage, we can afford to lose some acreage. Yeah. You know, Annie, I have a question for you. So stepping back from the specifics of the drought and, and specific policies, can you explain the difference? There are a lot of different environmental organizations in California. There's NRDC, there's the Sierra Club, there's Environment in California, and there are many more. And can you uh, sort of parse out the differences and, and explain what makes what the mission of NRDC is and how it differentiates from those other ones? And uh, I'm sure for some of our listeners, they don't they probably confuse some of them. I know I have in the past. I'd love to kind of get your sense of, of how they all fit into the spectrum. Well, I think you're right to point out that there is a rich ecology of environmental and environmental justice uh, groups in California, as I mentioned earlier. Um, you know, that we have, I think that NRDC's uh, role in that is that while we have a big uh, membership base in California, we have over uh, almost 400,000 folks here but um, that are members of NRDC. But um, what 
I've always uh, been very rewarding to work with the NRDC team is that we have so many people on staff that are experts on, you know, these really detailed issues. Like when you're asking me about the uh, percentage of federal water delivery to uh, Central Valley farmers, well, I've got two guys, there's two guys on the staff, uh, two people, one's a woman uh, on the staff that have could tell you down to the decimal point, how much um, that delivery has been over the last 20 years and where it's moved and how we could shift that to- A frightening thought. (laughs) Yeah, just so that we could, you know, leave more uh, water in the river for the fish and irrigate the crops. So uh, the level of expertise and um, stick-to-itiveness, you know, I have a colleague, I had a colleague at NRDC who worked for 17 years to get water put back in the San Joaquin River. And uh, so we are able to really, you know, and NRDC has been like a family to me is that you've been, I've been able to, uh, you know, start my career there, have children, raise children there, retire, you know, and uh, make a living wage. And in the old days, you really couldn't do that in a lot of these nonprofits. So I, I think of NRDC as has that level of professionalism along with some, with grassroots, but, you know, groups like the Sierra club, they are, you know, they're huge and they have so many members and they're in every community. So their grassroots power is, you know, very effective. Um, I think one of the greatest advances to the environmental and nonprofit advocacy is the um, emergence of environmental justice advocates. And here in California, so folks speaking for themselves, for their own communities that are impacted by industrial pollution, uh, transportation corridors, uh, the real personal health impacts that people are feeling uh, because of the uh, environmental degradation that we're feeling. So I think that that has been um, a really positive growth area in California. And like a lot of things that happen in California, the environmental justice uh, groups here in California have really had an outsized impact on the effort nationally. I was just seeing the other day that uh, President Biden has an environmental justice advisory board he's put together uh, for, you know, to advise the White House. And there's several Californians on that. So uh, NRDC, when I just generally just stepping back, I think of it as a lot of lawyers. I just think the NRDC is like, okay. These are the people that go to court and fight the legal fights. I just think of them as very litigious. Maybe this is just, a, you know, not really all that true, but they do show up in court and they fight the environmental fight before judges and before, you know, getting into fights. Is that fair characterization? Absolutely. Um, you know, we were in a very healthy uh, competition with uh, former Attorney General Becerra about, oh, 
does, is California or NRDC suing the Trump administration more times? I actually think that we did sue the Trump administration. I think we were up to 130. And by the time Becerra left office, he had 110 or something. Oh, wow. So those are separate from stuff he did, from suits that he filed. Yours yeah, were- because um, the the attorney general of California representing the state has standing to bring some suits that uh, NRDC would not have standing to bring. And of course the attorney general was bringing them on a full range of issues, not necessarily what NRDC would have filed lawsuits on. Although I will note that um, NRDC, like uh, the environmental movement in general is much more, uh, intersectional, as they say, is working on lots more issues that are interconnected uh, in terms of racial justice and um, those issues. So, for example, during the pandemic, we spent a lot of time trying to make sure that folks that there was, you know, to protect renters and to protect um, people from utility bills or having their water turned off or any of that because of economic hardship during the pandemic is to try and get uh, protect renters and protect um, low-income people from losing their services. Uh, Annie, just one last question. Uh, uh-huh. Speaking of the pandemic, as we record this on Tuesday, June 15th, uh, California supposedly is re-emerging into the light and things are reopening. Um, how's that going to affect, what do you think you're going to be doing? I'm, I'm basically continuing to wear my mask when I go out <laughs> in the public. So I don't trust anybody saying otherwise, but most people don't agree with me, but I just wondered how's this affecting you? How did the pandemic affect you and looking ahead, what's going to happen? Well, the pandemic uh, really changed um me and my family, uh, you know, I, I retired during the pandemic. I, um, had, I had, uh, bought, I'd just gotten right before the pandemic. I'd been lucky enough to find a place down in Carmel Valley that my husband and I were able to purchase and with, with the eventual thought of retiring. And then the pandemic hit and we were like, well, it seems pretty safe down in Monterey County. So we uh, moved down there. And then both my uh, children who are in their thirties and lived in small apartments in San Francisco decided to give up their apartments. And my son moved into our house in the Bay area. So everybody's moved. Um, And I think that, you know, I was very, uh, we have some risk factors in our family. So I was very, locked up during the pandemic. And uh, that was an adjustment for me. But now that I got when I got used to it, it's harder for it. You know, I'm having I'm generally kind of a gregarious person, but I'm I'm thinking about it a second more and more these days, you know, kind of have questions on how much more to get out there, but I'm ready to get out. And um, I've had some good conversations with folks. I actually just talked with former Senator Hannah Beth Jackson a couple of weeks ago. You know, she carried that bill about um, getting more women on boards uh, in California. So I'm starting to think about what opportunities are there. And I'm also getting more involved locally. Uh, But I think that uh, just as 
uh, the whole build back better thing. I think that we don't want to just go back to normal. I think I don't want to just go back to always hopping on a plane to go to meetings or driving a long way to go to meetings. I think that we can have a lot more. Um, I've certainly one of the benefits of this Zoom culture we've gotten is more people are involved yeah. and more people, you know, you can get, you can talk. I, I will say, I don't think that, um, these public hearings on Zoom are as effective as uh, they they could oh, yeah, be. Totally. Yeah. They're really hard to manage, and I don't think we've got that one right yet. But we want more people uh, involved, but not in a un, in an unhelpful way. So, I'm uh, I was at the grocery store yesterday, and I asked when I was checking out, I asked the guy if he was going to change any protocols with uh, with masks, and the guy bagging the groceries said, well, you know, what I heard, what I'm, I'm going to have to wear my mask, but you don't have to. <laughs> so I kind of thought, well, I, I'll just keep wearing my mask in solidarity with the folks on the front line who've been uh, doing all that hard work all this time. And certainly essential workers, I hope that uh, people don't forget who those essential workers are and how and who it is we need to depend on to keep things going. Great. I certainly developed a um, much more acute appreciation and awareness for all the different pieces that we depend on. Great. Well, Annie, thank you so much. Annie Natoff, thank you for joining okay. Tim and I here today. And now Tim Foster and I will turn to our regular feature, Who Had the Worst Week in California Politics? The worst week. Worst week. Worst week. You might think that's an easy call, but you know what? It seems to be harder each week. Either a lot of people had a bad week or hardly anybody did, and a lot of people had a good week. And, you know, we don't like to talk about people that had good weeks. We're looking for the bad week. So we thought. Oh, that's it. Who had a good week this week? Yeah. Um, I think Newsom had a good week. He did, uh, actually. You know what? I think when we talk about who had a bad week, I think it's pretty clear this week. It was this week, and it's still going on, are California's farmers, at least those who depend, which most of them, who depend on California and federal water supplies to get their crops grown and to get them to market so we can eat them. So this week, we're going to talk about California farmers and the dire straits they are just going into right about now. Tim, you got any thoughts about that? Uh, well, you know, we touched on this a little bit with Annie, but uh, the drought is bad this year, and... You know, I'm no expert, but just looking out the door, it's it seems very, very, very dry, drier than I really remember on an average, any kind of a average year. And obviously, the temperatures are going up. Uh, and I don't know if you've noticed this, but there's this damn wind in Sacramento now. Not only is it hot, but it seems like every night we have a weird wind, which is not the pleasant Delta breeze, but uh, this. Uh -huh this kind of busy wind. Thankfully, right now, we are not seeing a lot of wind because I, I know the fire people uh, are keeping a close eye on any really hot days and wind is sort of a double nightmare. So uh, well, uh, state and federal officials both cut water supplies to their customers. The state warned earlier this week, hey, we're going to cut off water to you folks. And then the next day they did that. They sent cutoff notices to 4,300 users, um, most of those farms. There are 2,300 more who have older or more senior water rights. They haven't received their notices yet, but the likelihood is that they will later in the summer. So they're not looking good. The federal Central Valley Project folks uh, 
cut off water also to their customers. And they acknowledged in their note, this was going to be a bad, this can be a hardship for a lot of people. Yes, that's the understatement of the year. Um, but they did it anyway to conserve water supplies for all of us. There are about uh, 120,000 ranches and farms in California, and about half of them say they their principal businesses farming, which means they need water. So we're really, uh, they've had a bad week this week, and I don't think it's going to get better. Um, another interesting factoid, we think of droughts, I think of a long drought is two or three years. Going back historically and looking at tree rings for evidence and going back uh, hundreds and thousands of years, it turns out California had one drought that was 220 years long. Wow. Uh, and a, one after that was 140 years long. So this is bad news. Since 2000, we had one drought, according to um, Climate News, which went from 2011 to 2000. 17. And some people count it 2019, which would have made it 376 weeks of drought, which is hard to imagine. Seems like we're having more drought than we're having any other, um, any other kind of weather. So, so to the farmers, I think it's pretty clear they had a bad week and we may have a regular feature on who had the best week, uh, who had the worst week slash farmers that'll go forward as we go through the summer. I don't know. Yeah, well, and you know, and I think also uh, this will, Pardon the bun trickle down. I'm sure that environmentalists will will be having problems if if we continue in the drought the way it has been. I know that there are going to be problems with getting enough water in the lakes and the streams for the fish yeah. and for the wildlife. And obviously, then that exacerbates fire danger, which then exacerbates damage to habitat. So uh, the farmers may have some competition from the environmentalists on who had the worst week if this drought does not uh, does not ease up a little bit. Although, I, obviously, I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. Yeah. Great. Tim Foster, thank you very much. Thanks, John. Uh, this is John Howard saying thank you very much for listening, and we will catch you next time around. Thank you. The Capital Weekly Podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll go onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a positive review. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.